Good afternoon, Silver Bay and brothers and sisters in the Dhamma. Before we start the talk, let's uh, pay uh, homage to the Buddha. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Today, Sister Sylvia will talk about Chaitana Sutta on volition or intention. Before that, we will have a short, quiet time. Over to you. Sister. Okay. Um, I would like to invite everyone to just sit back, relax. We're going to listen to the Dhamma, so our mind should have concentration and ease. There should be a sense of ease. So I'm going to take you through um, a form of metta reflection. I've done this before, so some of you may already be quite familiar with the words. If that is good, it means you can then focus on the words, have a deep sense of the meaning, and at the end of which, I hope you will feel joy, and therefore having this ability to share, the, uh, share, share your merits. Okay, so I'd like to invite everyone to close your eyes. Have a sensation of bodily contact first. Bodily contact means as you sit, where are the points? that touch the surface, your mind can move from point to point. Elbow against the back of the chair, your back to the back. If you're seated, feet on the floor, butt on the chair, Scan through the body. Be aware of the contact points. Where the points are, let your mind travel there for a short while. Note the contact. And you can move on slowly. As you're observing the body, you may be aware of a breathing, of breathing going on. Breathing is performed by the body 
naturally so you don't have to do anything you just observe you should relax feel comfortable be comfortable with the breathing it's rising falling rising and falling it's a natural part of life spend a short moment to experience the breathing rhythm you should feel a subtle softness in the mind mind is at ease and now i would like you to reflect as follows if what if the words resonate with you then i want you to feel the meaning of the words in this life i am a seeker of the buddhist dhamma i journey through this life in search of the path to the end of this life i am dedicated to upholding the practice i may or i may not see the dhamma in this life but i will never stray from the path the path the dhamma is the most beautiful gift of our teacher the buddha I am not perfect but as I continue in this practice I've become kinder gentler more considerate of others more respectful of others while i still i may still have anger arising but anger 
dissipates faster. I harbor no ill will, and I wish no one harm. I may still have a rising of wanting, but I know the importance of moderation. I'm learning to be content. Contentment is joyous. Contentment is peace. My life is blessed indeed. I live in a place I feel safe. I can take care of myself and my loved ones. And now I have Dhamma. Life cannot be more blessed. I can't express my gratitude enough. The joy that I feel right now I wish that all my loved ones could feel as I feel. I wish that all sentient beings can experience this joy that I'm feeling so that they too can live free from fear, free from pain, free from suffering, and that they all one day would have the wisdom to come to the Dhamma. I would like to wish all sentient beings in all directions before me, behind me, to my left and to the right, above and below, those who are born and those still unborn, those who are seen and others unseen, from the elderly to the youngest, from the biggest to the smallest. May all beings wherever they are, be well and happy. May all beings be free from suffering, from pain and fear, to live in peace and harmony, to experience the joy of spirituality and the Dhamma.
साधु 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 If you're ready, you can slowly make your way out of your meditation or reflection. And get the mind ready to listen to the Dhamma. Today's talk is relatively shorter than the ones that I have been delivering over the past many weeks. It's only about, I don't know, 13 slides, 12, 13 slides. So we should be able to cover the ground, the, the slides, the ground of the talk quite quickly today. But the teachings here... Um, can be a little challenging, but maybe a bit tough to understand because here today we are really talking about the mind, conditions of the mind for good and for bad. So you see that in this outline, I have laid down broadly two key points. Part one, first point, is on introductory note on Chaitana. Chaitana has been translated as intention or volition. Anything, any decision, any thought, action, speech, which has been made with intention, but deliberately, deliberately, that is Chaitana. Okay? We'll be touching on two suttas. The, the choice of the two suttas were, from, were by uh, the technical crew here. They wanted me to discuss these two suttas. And because they are relatively short, we, we'll discuss them together. At first glance, the two suttas don't seem to be very related. Huh? Because one sutta, SN Samyutta Nikaya 12.38 Intention, talks about the very subtle habits in the mind, the habits that will keep rebirth going. And the second one is actually practice. The second one, 11.2 from Anguttara Nikaya, uh, Making a Wish, this one explains how, what conditions will help in spiritual progress. What are the conditions necessary for spiritual progress from when you don't know much to when you realize the Dhamma and actually taste Nibbana. There's a series of conditions. And as long as the conditions are in place, you will, you will realize Nibbana. You don't have to worry about Doing, making aspirations and, and, and thinking anxiously about how you're going to achieve it. It will happen. Set the right conditions, spiritual enlightenment will happen. Have the conditions not there, you can make all the aspirations in the world, it's not going to work. Okay? So this is broadly the, the talk. 
and how the other two connected essentially by the theme Chitana. Volition. How volition drives behavior and how volition makes it possible for enlightenment. Okay, before we go into the sutta, I, I wanted to introduce a couple of other teaching, other words from the Buddha, which I thought is, they, they are critical for one to understand properly what is Chetana. And it came from another sutta, Anguttara Nikaya, 6.63 penetrative. I kept the Pali words because the Pali words are really very beautiful. The English translation loses a bit of the meaning. I mean, it's there. The translation is perfect, but the punch, the punch is not. So the Pali word says, it goes like this. Chittanahang bikave kamang wadami. Chittana, volition slash intention. Ahang, ahang, I. So this is said by the Buddha. Chetana, volition, ahang, I, because. Kamang wandami. Wadami means say. I say. So ahang wadami, Buddha said, I say. Chetana is kamang. Chetana, volition, is kama. This is where it comes from. We always talk about karma actually is not about the boomerang from the past. Karma are the conscious decisions, the volitional intentions you have cause karma. It came from this line. Chetana hang bikave kamang wadami. Cheta itua kamang karoti. Cheta itua having intended Karoti is to do kama. By kayena wachaya manasa. By body kayena. Through speech wachaya manasa mind. By mind. So therefore the translation is spot on. It's intention that I call these. Having made a choice, one acts by body, speech and mind. The point here is this. Anytime you consciously decide, you have that intention, from that intention comes action. So you decide and then the words come out. You decide and then you undertake action. And sometimes you have that intention and the mind starts plotting. This mind starts thinking, reflecting, planning and plotting. And then the, so the mind starts running. Why is this important? Because we must always bear in mind the moment we have considered something carefully and we act on it, however that is expressed, however that intention is expressed, it doesn't matter. It leaves an imprint in the mind. So kama actually are the imprints that we leave in the mind having consciously decided. 
that is why we talk about, you know, this thing about killing and stealing and all those things, especially killing. I have been asked questions like, if I were to drive a car and my car knocked down, say, a, an, a, an animal, have I committed killing? And I said, no. Unless you aim for your car to go and crash into the animal with the intention of killing it. Otherwise, if you're driving and the animal gets killed, there is no killing karma. That doesn't mean you don't have regret. For having been an object that caused or the condition that led to the death of somebody, of course we have regret. But you have regret. Your karma, karma is regret. Your karma is not killing. Do you understand this? This part? Just bear this in mind. So sometimes we say, oh, we are very nice people, what? We never say the fella, I don't know why the fella is hurt. But was there any intention in your mind to cause hurt? But you're very skillful, the words that came out wasn't particularly uh, aggravating. So if you have intention to cause pain and the individual being sensitive or knows you so well, caught it, felt pain, your mind had already created the karma. Even though your words are so sweet and tender, it is still karma. Negative ones. Okay? Now, next one. My favourite Dhammapada verses. Mine is the chief, the forerunner of all states. Experiences are led by, produced chiefly, chiefly by the mind. This translation is, is very well done because it captures the meaning of the Pali words beautifully. Of course, it added a bit of things here and there, but doesn't matter. This is very, it very nicely captured the meaning of that stanza. Dhammapada verse number one, mind is the forerunner of all states. Experiences created by the mind, led by the mind. If one speaks or acts with a corrupted, impure mind, suffering will follow just like the will of an ox cut when the ox pulls. If one speaks or acts with a pure mind, Happiness will follow along just like one's shadows that never departs. Here in this stanza, it captures intention, state of mind, and happiness or not. This portion here is very critical. Your intention will basically set the tone for the mind. Okay? And from that state of mind, that's when you will start acting, speaking, talking, or, uh, sorry, acting, talking, thinking. If your motivation are unwholesome, and there are three critical unwholesome roots, loba, dosa, moha, if your intentions are unwholesome, it doesn't matter what are the words or what are your action, the imprint in the mind is unwholesome and your constant unwholesomeness, your, your, 
your three unwholesome roots will then cause you to experience unhappiness. So when we talk about unwholesomeness, it is not just you causing pain for others. The first victim of your pain is yourself. We can be good people. We think, a lot of us, a lot of us think we are good people. But if we're not careful, if we are not careful, even good people with good intention, but the driving route is greed and anger and of course delusion, then despite your aspiration of, being, of wanting to be a good person, despite your aspiration, it will, the imprint will still be unwholesome. So then one will then wonder, why is it I'm a good person, but I experience so much pain? It's because in the mind, the underlying motivation, maybe anger, maybe wanting, wanting. I use the word greed and everybody gets defensive. If I use the word preferences, wanting, desires, is it more palatable? Do people feel like wanting and desire is not so bad, ma? Relative to greed. Greed sounds like a bad word, right? By the word greed, everybody says, eh, not a nice person. But if you think about it, right, this low bar actually means I want. And very often we say, one thing is very subtle, what's wrong with that? Too much wanting will leave an imprint which will cause the mind to become agitated, aggravated. Constant level of wanting and wanting will then lead the mind to be naturally, almost instinctively unhappy. That's what it means. When we look at this first verse, we tend to think of someone being really evil. Even the word evil appears there, really evil. I am saying that you don't have to go into the deep state of evil. Huh? All you need to do is have many desires, many preferences, many goals and objectives, a whole list of one thing. And it's enough to give you a lot of dukkha. Okay? You don't have to be foremost of those who are greedy. You don't have to. You only have to be national average one thing. That is why, that is why many of us keep saying we are very stressed. All these stresses that we feel, they are correlated to the one thing that we have. The more wants, the more items on your list, your to-do list, and you can't let any of them go, the sense of stress is there. With that heavy stress, that's when you will cause pain for others. We all will, when we get very stressed, we will score. When we get very stressed, we will hit out. We will let go. It's just stress. You're not evil. But how did that stress come out? Many ones. So, 
The, I pull out a third one, not because it's the opposite. You see, there are three akusala motivations, and then I come up with three kusala motivations. It's not because I just need to point out huh, everything got balanced. It's not that. It's actually because I want you, I want everyone to be very mindful of the words aloba, adosa. You look at, Buddha didn't say the three wholesome roots are loving-kindness, chaga. He didn't say it like that. Chaga means generosity. Chaga dana, generosity. And loving-kindness would be like, like the opposite of ill will. But he said, aloba, not greedy. Adosa, not angry. Right? Why is that? Why didn't he push it all the way to loving kindness and generosity? Why aloba adosa? Because all you need is to watch the mind and make sure that what's motivating you is not greed. Between greedy and giving, is a spectrum. You just have to make sure you are not at the point of greed. And in your mind, when you pursue a course of action, you've got to keep make sure that that wanting, that craving, that desire, that one is moderated. You keep it moderated, then there is a part in you that is naturally accepting. What you want is a mind that is accepting. Good enough. You don't have, if you can, push it all the way to dana and chaga, generosity. Good. But if you can't get to chaga and dana and selflessness in extreme, it's okay. You just have to make sure the greed is not present. And if, if there is a very subtle wanting, I would prefer, in your mind, I prefer, okay, keep it that level. Keep it, keep it at that level. Keep it gentle, subtle, more accepting. Once you can keep it as more accepting, you're okay. You just look at your own mind when it is stressed. The more you want, the more stressed you will be. If you keep it at, okay, I would hope that this happens, but if it doesn't quite hit the mark, fall short of perfection, it's okay. I'm okay with it. You will find that the stress level immediately reduces. Immediately. Adosa means in your reaction, make sure that there isn't that anger or irritation or agitation. You see how much you can hold the line there. You see that there is a slight agitation. You must recognize that this slight agitation means you have wanting. The moment you moderate the wanting, the agitation will drop. It's proportionate. You can do that. This is adosa. Without anger, without too much pushing and wanting, 
your mind lands on a decision and you move, you will find that in this state, you are a much happier person. Okay? Now come the Sutta proper. This was uh, Ajahn Sujato's translation. Every time you see the word mendicants, you know it comes from Ajahn Sujato. What you intend or plan. So, intend, plan, underline tendencies, anusati. What you intend or plan have underlying tendencies for become a support for the continuation of consciousness. When this support exists, consciousness becomes established. When consciousness is established and grows, there is rebirth into a new state of existence in the future. When there is rebirth into a new state of existence in the future, future rebirth, old age, death comes to be, so do sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, distress. This is how the entire mass of suffering originates. And then we read and we say, okay, pretty straightforward. Pretty straightforward. That, that was why I said that this talk will be short. It's a pretty straightforward uh, teaching here. There's some, a few things to point out. Intent means jetana. Right? We've been saying chitana, chitana, volition, intent. So this is level one. I think we will... So you see, uh, level one is like this. We'll go for dinner tonight. That's intent. Full stop, then that's it. But very often when you say, we'll go for dinner tonight, we will start planning. We will do this, we will do that, shall we go there, maybe we should do, take a car, get a grab, do, blah, blah, blah. you start planning. When you plan, the imprint, the imprints into the mind, expands, grows, multiplies. You do it deep enough, for often enough, Every weekend, you must go out and eat. Every weekend, you must eat at the best places or you have a, prep, a preferred place and you keep going there. Every weekend, ever so often, food is a regular feature in your mind. It creates an underlying tendencies. So, intent, plan, underlying tendencies are actually the deepening of impact on the mind. Okay? The result of which is once it hits underlying tendencies, this is something you will carry with you uh, into future lives. This is what it means. Suppose, let's say, in this life, you yearn for romantic love. I must use an example. When you when you have, say, this, this desire for romantic love, right? And your mind keeps going around and around and around this. This idea. This is what you want. This is what you need. And for whatever reason, maybe this life, you didn't find your, the perfection you want. Then you will go off 
you move on into another life with this habit, this desire, this yearning. You have no idea why it is like that, but it's like that. Somehow it's something that's nag nagging you within. That, that is the underlying tendencies. And we all have this. We all have this problem, okay? And as long as you have... So you, the mind, unfortunately, constantly churn. We cling to, we get preoccupied with. It recurs. You look at the word anuseti. You keep having it. Then it is like a self-generating battery. Essentially, what happens is a self-generating battery that keeps rebirth going. As long as there is volition, however subtle, it will leave an imprint on consciousness. And with, whenever there is consciousness, there will be a new state of rebirth, a new existence. Now, if we talk about after next lives and all, we can, some of us will say, can't see, don't know. How do we say, right? Uh, it can be anything. You know, we can say all kinds of things. But let's just take it, keep it in this life, to this life. Just keep it to this life. Huh? You think about your own experience. Think about your own experience in life. You look at how you have changed from a young age to now. When you were younger, still in your uh, shorts for the guys and uh, I don't know, uniform. So, you know, when you're very young, you have certain habits there, certain behavior, certain way of doing things. And then you grow. As you grow, you learn new tools, you learn new ways, it starts to change you. Depending on your condition, the conditions that you've gone through, things start to change for you, right? Now you tell me, in all these wandering through life, through this life, in your wandering through this life, in the manner that you change and you evolved, would you say that you, 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 what you are today is very much the, a sum of the conditions of the past? What you are today, the way that you are, your instincts, the way you react to people, the way you fight, the way you love, everything that you are right now, wouldn't you say that this is very much the, uh, the sum of a condition of, sorry, the sum of conditions from the past? Do you understand what I'm saying? And if that's the case, in the way that you see the world, in the way that you experience the world, wouldn't you say that that's your consciousness? So what you have planned, what you have volitionally created, is the state that you are now. And this state that you are now, this is your consciousness. This is your state, your experience, your reality. So let's say you have always resented people you feel taken advantage of. You, make a, you have always been complaining. 
your narrative is very negative. People take advantage of you. People say this about you. Nobody likes you. You are so, you're so cheated. You go on and on and on. Right now, at this point, having reached here, if you stare at your mind right now, wouldn't you say there is a deep sense of angst right now, which is then your reality? So what you say, how you say, what you do, how you do, the planning that you do, the, your, where you lend your attention, what you focus on, they all shape the way you are now. And the way that you are now is then your reality. This is actually what it means also. So we don't even have to look at the next life. Just in this life. You are already experiencing the choices you have made in the past. Some of us, the wiser one amongst us, will say, I wish I had done things differently. If, if we are unhappy. Lah. Actually, if you are so wise, you shouldn't be so unhappy. But if you are very unhappy, then perhaps there will be the arising of a wisdom that makes you realise that, you know, maybe I should do things differently, say things differently, be a nicer person, etc., etc., be more wholesome. If you can do that, and you, you make strong effort to do that, be nicer, kinder person, you will shift things around. It takes time, but it will happen that you will then begin to experience a warmer, happier, more wholesome, more wholesome life, reality. Happier and more wholesome reality. Okay? This stanza tells you that even if you don't intend or plan, meaning from now on you stop, you stop having creating volition. I don't, I don't see how it can happen unless you are Arham. But assuming that right now you say, I stop doing it. I stop planning and thinking. I just go along. Look at what he said. You still have underlying tendencies. Becomes a support for the continuation of consciousness. Okay? Which... I said, this is the anatta nature of samsara, which means to say, you think you're in charge. You think you will and control and determine and shape. It's like everything is within your control. But the reality is, you only have partial, partial you can make partial impact. Think of yourself as driving a Titanic in, in the ocean. HMS Queen Elizabeth II, QE2. This huge, giant ocean liner. You want to turn left, you turn left. Uh. You want to turn right, you turn right. You have to make the determination and then depending on the conditions of the sea, the strength of your ship, your liner, and other climatic conditions, and then things happen in the direction you steer. But even then, the physics, the science, will still determine how fast, how far, 
how much, right? And this is on an event that is outside of you. Now we're talking about all these things inside you, which is a lot more complex. You are a far more complex creature than QE2. If you, think of, if you look at your own mind, you will see for yourself all kinds of tussles. Why are there all these tussles within you? Should I? Should I not? Maybe it's like that. Maybe he thinks like that. Maybe he does that, 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 that. You see how your mind talks a lot when you're trying to make a decision? All this tussling going on, the, the imbalance and all those things. The reason why you have that, that tussle, is because you have all kinds of underlying tendencies. All kinds of little, little habits coming alive for you. And therefore, you will still have consciousness. Okay? It will still land. And when you die, this one is actually really talking about at your deathbed, if you still have volitional activity, meaning in this life you have all these choices made, and then they will shape into a habit, a tendency. At your deathbed, all these tendencies will come up. We want to be as wholesome as we can be. We want to help the mind be as pure as, as it can be because we hope that at the end of life, the mind naturally goes into a wholesome state and your rebirth will then be a good one. Even if you had not done evil deeds, you have not slaughtered people, you have not stolen vast amount of money or, or cheated people of their inheritance or do funny things that everyone will judge you as evil, even if you've never done any of those things. But your entire life, you have been angry and aggrieved and you feel like you, you had been shortchanged in life. So you have a lot of resentment, you have a lot of anger. If that becomes a habit, then at the deathbed, those are the tendencies that will surface. Those are your underlying tendencies. That is why it is very important that in daily life, we want to do dana sila bhavana. Dana is the generosity that comes out spontaneously. Your willingness to help, your willingness to serve, your willingness to forgive, your willingness to be good to people, be kind to people, be considerate, so and so forth. Your dana sila, sila is restraining yourself from bad, bad uh, unwholesome acts, unwholesome speech, and holding yourself to wholesome speech and act. And hopefully within the mind, keep it all wholesome as much as you can. Bhavana is a constant, constant cultivation of the mind. 
we will we, we tend to be we're national average people, so we will tend to have wholesome moments and wholesome moments. Bhavana is the effort to stay and cultivate wholesomeness as much as possible, constantly improving. Okay? You keep doing this along this way, then your mind at the end of life, that mind is naturally wholesome. Naturally wholesome. Underlying tendencies, wholesome. Okay? Now, this sutta is very specific. It's actually helping monks because Buddha was talking to monks. He was making the point to monks that you have to train yourself to a point such that the craving habits, the instinctive craving habits cease. Because as long as those habits, those instincts do not cease, then they will trigger a rebirth. As long as there is a wanting. So you see, uh, even if you don't plan, don't intend, don't plan, but you still have underlying tendencies, these underlying tendencies imply a craving presence. A, a very subtle, instinctive wanting, which will then translate into the different kind of behavior, different kind of habits. So it's from one thing, which is craving, it will translate into, it will manifest into different kind of habits. Okay? That alone, that craving alone will trigger consciousness. When this exists, when this habits exist, it means your craving exists, consciousness will become established. The second part of it says that when there is consciousness, there will be rebirth, there will be a becoming. You will come alive again. As long as there is life, you cannot avoid death. All of us sitting down here one day will move on from this life. We cannot avoid that. And before we get to the point where we kaput, you will fall sick, you will have many moments of crying fits, crying for others who have moved on and you love them, you will grow old, you will have all kinds of mental stresses and agitation in life. There is no one perfect life such that none of the above would happen. There isn't. It does not matter what you are. You can be the richest man on earth or you can be the most powerful person around. You still have to go through this. Whether it is losing relationship, losing people, losing opportunities, losing yourself. I mean, whatever it is that you're losing, you're losing something. Where there is a gain, there is a loss. Where there is happiness, there is pain. Where there is someone who says nice things about you, there will be others who will do this to you. This is just the nature of life. So here the Buddha said, you want suffering to completely cease? Don't be born again. That's essentially what it means. 
Don't come again. What is special about the Dhamma? What is special about our teaching? Is that he found the way to stop it. He found the principle that keep life going. And once you take it out, once you extract that craving, then this self-generating life will cease. And when that life stops, then this becomes the last birth, and you don't have to worry about the whole mess, the entire mess of Dukkha. Like Groundhog Day, starting all over again. Okay. This kind of just sum it up. If you don't intend or plan or have underlying tendencies, doesn't become a support for the continuation of consciousness. No support. Consciousness not established, doesn't grow, no rebirth, no rebirth, no new state, no future rebirth, no old age death. They all cease as do sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, and distress. This is how the entire mess of suffering ceases. Okay? Now, this is sutta number one. Only three stanzas. As, yeah, three, three verses. Pretty straightforward. Now we go into the second one, which is talking about uh, spiritual progress and the... The point here is how progress sits on conditions and not on volition. Okay? This is Anguttara Nikaya 11.2. Chetana Karaniya Sutta. Making a wish. But actually, it's, it's the opposite of it. Yeah? Bhikkhus, so this is Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation. Bhikkhus, for a virtuous person, one whose behavior is virtuous, no volition need be exerted. Let non-regret arise in me. It is natural that non-regret arises in one who is virtuous one whose behavior is virtuous. I said this, there are some critical points here. You will find that in this sutta, that the entire spiritual journey is conditionally driven. Meaning to say, as soon as you are able to set in place and put in place certain conditions, those conditions will keep progress Going will keep you growing spiritually. Okay? So, what you need to understand is to set the right condition and not just will your way to Nibbana. Think of it like this if I want to make fire, I will need to have oxygen, I would need to have a flammable material. And the right action that caused that flink and flink and, and the fire starts. Huh? You can't just say, let there be fire. And then you keep your finger crossed that something will happen. It doesn't work like that. 
So the same thing. This is Buddha's way of saying all is science, mental science, the science of the mind. You have heard of this expression, beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, beautiful in the end, right? The, describing the Dhamma. So this is where it starts. Beautiful in the beginning. Sila. You want to walk this Dhamma path? The very first thing that you need to cultivate is Sila. Sila. And the practice of sila for one yearning to walk the path. We're not talking about the regular national average sila where you say make do can already. I observe five precepts, bole, my sila very good. We're not talking about that level. That is minimum that we must do. But we must go into sila which is purifying the mind. You are a practitioner. You have to purify this mind, which means we have to reduce the craving and the wanting and the desire. And if you can successfully do it, if you can successfully minimize your wanting and desire, you will find that the anger, the agitation part will reduce. So loba, dosa, moha eventually must all start to come down, reduce. Your, your principle in life, your governing principle in life should be empathy. That you will not do to another what you don't want another to do to you. Empathy. Your, in other words, when you treat people, you have to treat people in the way you want to be treated. So you want to be treated nicely, you want nice words to be said to you, you want people to be considerate and thoughtful, then you must, rep you must also reproduce that. The same. Cannot give yourself discount. You all must treat me nice, I decide what I want to do with you. Cannot be done like this. Has to be reciprocity. Huh? Or rather, the other way around, you start it. You be nice, you be good, then the rest decide whether they want to reciprocate. But it's okay for you. You just do what you should. Okay? So, a person who is virtuous, you have sila. Automatically in you, what arises is my conscience is clear. This non-regret means my conscience is clear. My hiri otapa, moral shame, moral fear, no, nothing. I feel good. I feel like I have been a good person. I'm happy with myself. That's the idea, and it's okay to feel happy with yourself if you have done something good. There are many words here. I will take you step by step. You have to remember this step by step. If you have no regret, for one without regret, joy arises spontaneously. That's the first one. For one without regret, you don't have to say, you don't have to will, let joy arise. It is spontaneous. Natural that Padmoja will arise. Okay? For one who is joyful, 
pity, rapture will arise. Now, these people are going into meditation. And I have said this before. You want to, know, you want to be able to meditate, you have to start with being very wholesome. For when you are wholesome, it is natural for you to feel the sense of lightness. Conscience is clear, you feel lightness. When there is this lightness, if you look at your mind, there is a part in you that is happy. You can call it joy, but Moja, the idea here is it's just happy and light. This is a... The Monday, this is, this is not in meditation. This is still outside of meditation. Okay? When you sit and you look at your mind, there is a certain lightness. It must be there. So even before you start, right, into the watching the breathing, watching that breathing, uh, your mind should start like this. It's a natural, natural joy, natural lightness. If your mind has stress or is agitated, it feels somewhat distracted and heavy, it means the, the wholesome condition is not enough. It is not enough. So the mind then gets more distracted easily and it goes looking around for stimulation. But if it is contented, it is enough, the mind would actually settle quite easily, okay? When there is joy, pity should arise. This is the front part of pity. Of course, when pity gets very strong, you can feel your goose pimple rising and very fast. Now, I want, I want to help you get a sense of what this means. Huh? You have all uh, attended... Can you recall? Try and recall. Try and recall an occasion when you did service or when you go before uh, very well-practicing monks, very good practitioners. Do you recall when you see them, you feel a lightness? You feel that joy? Do you then recall that sometime into the joy, you can actually feel your goose pimple rising? Do you all feel that? Yes or no? There are people here. There are people here. Yes or no? Do you remember that? Because I, that, that you feel, right, you, you, you have that joy and the lightness, and then as it surges, you actually feel this goose pimple coming up. That's pity. Okay? If you have never experienced pity before, you have to do better. When you go do dana, right, and you do dana to a lot of practitioner monks, the joy that you experience seeing them, you feel all these tinkling sensations and this, the body is delighting and the mind is like doing a pom-pom dance. That's pity. So it comes after that light joy. Then as it settles, so let see, uh, one with pity, you don't have to exert, you don't, no volition need, need to be ex exerted. The body, it's natural that the body of one with a rapturous mind is tranquil. 
So what it means is, as you see all this right, right, this goose pimple, this tingling sensation, the sense of energy that surges from within, when you have that experience, if you look at your form, it feels light. It will feel light. It will feel peaceful. It's the form. This is really the body that feels light and peaceful. Okay? And if you look into the mind, this is the next part. When you look into the mind, you will see that there is a, a satisfaction, a contentment. Here, we call it pleasure. It's all translation. But it's actually this sense of deep peace and happiness. The sukha refers to this happiness. Okay? And for one feeling this happiness, the mind naturally goes into concentration. And this is the samadhi that we talk about. So I repeat this. For those of you who say that meditation is very hard, very tough, please remember this. Buddha laid down a path. He identified the milestones that people will go into when they meditate. And it is exactly like this. You start with the sense of lightness, the sense of joy, the sense of, I feel good. It's, it must be ease. I, I, it's a sense of ease. You start from there. And if that, mental, if that builds, you will feel this energy surging, which you will experience in the form sometime. Hair rising at the back of the neck, goose pimples all over, tinkling sensations, whatever you call it. This is essentially this PT that is coming up. You go a bit deeper, you will feel the sense of ease and tranquility in the body and the mind. The body is the, this tranquility, the mind is that sukha. Another point that is not written here, but it suddenly just struck me. Oh, yeah, actually, it's here. Note the body-mind correlation. Remember this. You want to be able to meditate. You don't chong for a very subtle thing. You actually have to see the form first. When the form is steady and the form sits upright and easy, the mind is also steadying. The mind is also getting easy. The two will come together. You look at the words written here, body and mind, stabilizing, being light, being joyous, being at ease, being tranquil. The mind and the body comes together. Okay? You want to go into jhana, you go and look at Kaya Gata Sati Sutta MN119, from jhana 1 to jhana 3, it's all about using the body to bring up the jhana. Okay? It's very consistent. And that way, you can't go wrong. Buddha said so. You go try it out for yourself, you will see.
that he is right or he was right. Beginning, middle, and the end. Okay? So beautiful in the middle, this segment, Samadhi. And for one with concentration, you don't have to keep saying, let me know and see things as they are. This is the jnana, uh, sorry, yatha buddha jnana dasana. Yatha, whatever is there, whatever buddha is there, jnana, knowledge, dasana, see. So, know and see things as they are. One with samadhi, the mind goes quiet and still and steady. Automatically, it will start observing its nature, the mind's nature. Seeing the mind's nature, this, it will then begin to be able to observe. I said here, five aggregates of grasping. It will see feeling. Sanya, if you can catch it, or if you can't, it will still be Nama Rupa. You see the form and you see the mind broadly as transient, as unstable. As long as they are transient, they are not stable. Not stable means they keep changing. Whatever is seen is gone, they keep changing. And as such, unsatisfactory. Why not self? Because the experience is transient and there is nothing in that transient that is a self. There's nothing transient that's a self. Okay? So all experiences conditionally a reason. This is what you're supposed to see. For one who knows and sees things as they really are, you don't have to, no volition need be ex 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 exerted. Let me be disenchanted. It is natural that one who knows and sees will be disenchanted. I will cut this into two parts and explain separately. You see my words there? Willingly, uh, sorry, wittingly, unwittingly, the regular mind relishes craving. Thought of indulging gratification is welcome. Now, don't look at the words. You just, listen, you just reflect. Go into your own mind. You look at your own mind. If you look at your own mind, do you, are you aware that there is a part in you that is always seeking? Seeking. The word is seeking, always seeking pleasure. Good. Uh, if, if you say not pleasure, but the good part of things, the mind naturally, naturally leans towards... You look at these words that I throw at you, huh? and you tell me what you think. Blessing, luck, good fortune, happy coincidence. Would you hear these words? How does it make you feel? I want that. I, I want this. Now I say this to you. Disaster. Catastrophe. Victim. 
helplessness. How do you feel? I don't want these words. This is natural. The mind naturally leans towards the kind of things or events or people that give them pleasure or at least not pain. Natural. That proclivity is there. That means embedded in the habit of the mind is craving. You think of the words good fortune, good luck, happy coincidence. All these words, you look at the word, can you see craving arising there? Embedded in the word is craving. And this craving, we don't recognize, we don't realize, we don't see it as troublesome, problematic, the origin of dukkha. We don't see it like that. Craving is natural, then just accept, oh, it's okay, it's natural. So we accept. Then what the Buddha said, craving is the origin of dukkha. So then what, what do we do? We say that, you know what, craving okay, ma. Even now, even now, we say craving is okay. And the reason is because we have taught ourselves, I don't know, I, I, I don't know whether this is science or this is a habit or this is uh, a self self-defense mechanism of the, the human being, I don't know. But the reason why craving feels okay is because we don't focus on the craving, we focus on the outcome. So a craving leading to an outcome that we want, thinking of the outcome, we are very happy already. Sweet. Doesn't matter if we have to struggle, if at the end of it, we triumph. Doesn't matter if right? As long as at the end of which I achieve my goals. So what is happening is that the regular mind is fixated on the outcome that it wants. It completely misses the dukkha of that craving. That's why Buddha said we are moha, we are deluded. We don't see what's there. We anticipate what's not there. And we take delight in the anticipation. You just look at how moha we are. Right? We're taking delight in gratification, the thought of gratification. We are not even doing it yet. That is why planning for a trip is so much happier than actually going through the trip. Then after the trip is over, we're reminiscing about the trip. It's so much better than what we're going through it. Because going through it, you experience the dukkha. Before and after, you don't. You can skip the dukkha bit and just focus on all the pleasures. Okay? Why is this important? Here the Buddha said, for one who see and know things as they are, 
will become disenchanted. So when the mind is awakened to the transient nature of reality, it is also awakened to meaninglessness, unsatisfactoriness of indulgence. Suddenly, it's like, Siena. Craving arises, Sien. As opposed to, craving arises, let's think of gratification. So I can mask the pain, the, the agitation, the aggravation, we can mask it. Right? This enchantment sits on aversion to habits of delighting. It is not aversion. It's actually realizing that this constant desire to delight and delight, that's not good. So what you have is looking at that, that desire and you go, enough is enough. But having this sense of this enchantment, I say, it is not balanced, meaning to say the disenchantment means your mind is leaning towards aversion. In the past, until you started the practice, the regular mind leans exclusively towards delighting, pleasure, enjoying. So the regular mind focuses on anticipation of returns, the practicing mind focuses on the pain of craving. And if you keep focusing on the pain of craving, then that in itself is very painful. And it's not just that. The other aspects of the reality of things really is not nice. Huh? It's actually the fall inversion. Apart from the transient nature and the dukkha, there is also the part where the mind, if you look at your own mind, it has a certain bias towards pretty, the attractive. The mind looks at something unattractive and skip. The mind would like to look at something nice looking. I mean, seriously, if you think about anything in your life, right? You're drawn towards somebody. Why? Because in your mind, in your eyes, the person is attractive. But did you see all the unattractive part? The dead cells, the, dead, the open pores, the sweat glands, the stench that comes with the bacteria growing on the form. We don't look at any of these things. Nobody say, nobody say, I love you because your, your bacteria are so alluring. I mean, who say that? Nobody says that. Everybody talk about your nice hair, but you know better in the hair, how much bacteria there is? Ah, what form, what type, viruses and so on. I mean, okay, we're just getting a bit, a, a, a bit graphic. Huh? We're getting a bit graphic. But the reality is we all focus on the pleasant and beautiful and attractive without realizing that for everything beautiful, there is actually the reality, which is quite, not quite what you see it to be. If you can miraculously transform into a microscopic observer, 
and you live in the life, you, your world is the world of under the microscope. At that level, definitely you will see reality as is. Do you see what I'm saying? So what you perceive to be reality is really not reality. And here the Buddha is saying, the moment you see reality as is, you ain't going to be so smitten. You will no longer be so attached. That's what he's saying. That is why part of our training is to train ourselves to try and literally, uh, you, and you, you, uh, what's that word? you force your mind to focus its attention on the other half that your mind has always not looked at. Your mind has always looked at beautiful. Now you're going to focus the attention on the part that is not beautiful, the part that is repulsive, the, the part that is unattractive. And as you start to do that, you will then begin to balance, begin to be a little bit more balanced in the way that you see nature, reality. Okay? I said this enchantment is not balanced, there is no accepted. What it means here is, as long as you stay disenchanted, there is an aversion, there is pain, there's actually more pain. Which is why in one of the suttas, the Buddha had actually said there are two ways of practicing cultivation. One way is sukha way, pleasure. The other way is the dukkha way, the painful way. So what is the sukha way is you go into your meditation, you go steal the mind, you experience the jhana, you begin to see reality as is, but your bonus, your uh, experience is cushioned by the jhana. Jhana experience is beautiful. So your sense of reality is not in such a way that it strikes you through the heart and tears you. You do it without that jhana, you do it without this mind that knows how to meditate, then you are forcing the mind to only focus on the ugliness and some people can't take it. That is why in the time of the Buddha, there was one episode where scores of monks went and killed themselves because they got it wrong. They were focusing only on repulsion, repulsion, repulsion. Then they say, why am I alive? They took their life. Buddha came out on retreat two weeks later and there was an obvious number of missing monks. Obvious number. So he asked Ananda, what happened to... Why is the number so few now? Ananda said they killed themselves. They were meditating on lovesomeness of the body, the 32 parts. And then the Buddha taught them metta. That's where the metta meditation also came up to help them balance up the mind, to feel the joy of life again. Okay? With growing insight and wisdom, acceptance, contentment will grow, hence dispassion. Dispassion comes about when you accept. You accept the nature of change. You accept transience. Basically, life is just like that. 
your clinging reduces as the clinging reduces the preferences reduce the acceptance grow and with that contentment grows okay for one dispassionate no volition need be exerted let me realize knowledge and vision of liberation natural then one dispassionate realizes knowledge and vision of liberation okay explain a little bit here vision is when you have a eyewitness real-time observation of a phenomenon so when you look at your mind and you see with the arising of craving dukkha arises you observe that when you reduce that craving and that wanting dukkha reduces this is real-time observation that is chaku that is vision you 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 reflect on what you have observed and your takeaway is oh this is the second noble truth first and second noble truth plus the third noble truth when you can do that kind of knowledge correlation that is knowledge then if you move on to know how to apply in all your daily life and it starts to shape the way you think the way you act the way you speak it re it transform you the knowledge and that vision transform you as an individual it means you're applying wisdom okay and buddha was saying here that one with dispassion remember what i said dispassion means you now have contentment and acceptance you no longer having this craving craving wanting things to be different why is it i have all this craving why can't the craving fade away that that kind of thoughts right no more it arises but even if there is a craving that comes up you see it's okay it will fade away you you begin to become like that this is when you see for yourself you are no longer trapped in a habit of compulsion most time in daily life you are compelled to do this and that what do i mean by that you think about it some things cannot say something should be like that why am i behaving like that why can't i be more wholesome why is it people are like that there is always in our mind why must be this we want it like this this is my preference this is not it should be when you when you have all this one thing one thing one thing your mind is shackled you are fettered okay as your one thing one thing starts to reduce you begin to feel more liberated you begin to then associate craving as a fetter craving as fetter and with the reducing or diminishing of craving the fetters that tie you break away and a lot of these fetters are mind made a lot of the fetters are mind made okay 
Some are your habits that wanting this and wanting that. I like to eat this, I don't like to eat that. Imagine, you go in and you say, I prefer to eat this and I prefer to eat that, right? And then the mind, at some point, you just accept taste. Taste is just taste, not particular about taste. Straight away, the factor to taste is gone. Right? That, that factor to taste is gone. Then there are thoughts, there are ideas, there are views. The more you let go, the less factors you have. If you are someone who cares very much how people look at you and think about you, those are your factors. And you think people are always thinking about you, man? No, they think about themselves a lot more. So the day that you realize that actually, there's no need to be worrying about how people think and see me, you know, it's okay, let be. The day that you realize that and you can accept that, the fetter of other people's opinion drops. You see what I'm saying? All fetters sit on your desire. The more desires you drop, the fewer fetters there are. So free, freed of fetters. And all this, uh, Although the Buddha say it this way, it seems like a one-shot thing. You sit, then you joyous, then you steal, then you see, then you <laughs> realize. It's not. This is a gradual training path. It takes a while. And you are constantly going up and down this, this ladder of understanding and, and, and training. Okay? I think this is the last one. Yes, this is the last slide. Now, the entire stanza above explains that every step of the way has a purpose and brings about a result. For a result. Okay? And I said, the point, I highlighted purpose and benefit because I want to stress stress to everyone that in the Buddha's path, on this Buddha's path, it is not enough to know how to do things, how I sit, how I should have this. It's, it's just as important to know why. I have to be wholesome because without wholesome mental energies, the mind can't experience ease and joy. Why must I have this joy and ease? Because otherwise, the mind cannot have this surge of energy that takes it to a higher level of joy, which now we call rapture. And this rapture helps the body to feel the sense of steadiness and ease, which then helps the mind to go still. Every step, when we ask why, then we understand how something should be done and it has to be like that because only like that, it creates the momentum for the next stage to appear. You look at what the Buddha said in the final line here. One stage flows into the next. One stage fills up the next. Only when you have the necessary mental conditions in place 
will the next step happen properly? So anyone who talks about wanting to meditate but don't know the steps, not sure about the steps, they are doing the wrong thing. It is not about the object that you look at. Not about the object. I know because I, I, I have explained meditation to many people. I keep having people tell, asking me this question. Do I place my watching in the nostril or the dot on the chest, on the tummy? What about out here? Where am I supposed to place my attention? You are fixated about the steps. The steps are not as critical as understanding why. Why something has to be done. And when you set the condition, it will settle by itself. It will happen by itself. So where you actually park the attention, if you're doing anapanasati, where you actually park the attention, what you're looking at, that part is actually not that important. You just have to stay. Wherever you park, you just stay there. More importantly is to have this ease and the form, feeling the comfort. So don't sit in a place where your mind can't settle because the form is so uncomfortable. Don't say that this is... I'm supposed to watch and see the agitation fade away. You are not even watching, right? Agitation won't fade away. That is actually what it means. Huh? So set the necessary conditions, the, the meditation will flow. With the meditation flowing, the insight will happen. I call this the Dhamma Chakra. You know the word Dhamma Chakra Pawatana Sutta, right? This beautiful first sutta word by the Buddha. It actually talks about Dhamma Chakra. What is Dhamma Chakra? It's the Sorry? The mic, is it? Where should I start again? Dhamma chakra. Okay. We, it's called Dhamma chakra because it is a vehicle, a wheel that takes you on a journey. The journey of the mind, the journey of finding your way out of samsara. Samsara, the cycle of life and death and rebirth, that cycle is like a labyrinth. We know we call it samsaric cycle, but it is a labyrinth. You get in, you get trapped, you're stuck. This is a labyrinth that traps you and keeps you going. And the Dhamma Chakra is that will that will take you out. Make it possible for you to find your way out of the labyrinth of life, of samsara. The final, final word here, which I really love, and I, I, I really love this, going from the near shore to the far shore. The idea here is, you see, what's a near shore? Where you are and all that you know, right? The things that you see, the experience that you have, the, the familiar objects and your 
habits and instincts are all with you in the near shore. Far shore is where it is beyond where you are. Beyond where you are. Distance, I don't know. But it is that which you have not seen, that which you do not know, you have no experience with, and you need to make a journey that takes you in that direction. And this idea about the far shore is you, you tend to know where it roughly is in a general direction. It's not here, it's there. Wherever it is, it's not here. So we are transiting the teaching, the, the Eightfold Path, the training formula is helping us to transit from the way that we are, the person that we are today, to a different, someone different with a different habits and instincts and mindsets from one who has dukkha, galore, to one with much reduced dukkha. It's a very different experience. For the Singaporean wanderer in us that love to go travel overseas, going to the far shore is a good thing. We kind of like far shore. Near shore is too near, right? Yeah, far shore is a good thing. Okay, so I'm done here. Uh, we have said a lot of things already. I think there are many questions. We can take questions now. Thank you, Cecilia. Uh, we have one first question is, how about a Sotapanna who uh, come to birth up to seven lifetimes? Do they suffer from rebirth? Sorry? Uh, Sotapanna comes into birth, it's a rebirth, ma? Yes, you do have rebirth. You will have rebirth up to a and maximum suffering. of seven lives. Huh? Do they suffer? As long as you have above, there will be dukkha. Okay? Dukkha is a given for any mind that still has craving. There are the dukkha associated with life, meaning to say when you are born, you die. When you are born, you will have fall sick, be old. Not just yourself. The people you love, the people you care for around you, they too will transit. They are born, grow old, and die. So there is the pain of the bodily form and there is the pain of the mind. Form is one thing, but that's the mind. The pain of the mind meaning your emotional pain, your, your thought pain, you know, as you think and you, the more you think, the more painful it gets. So those are the mind-based the mind pain. But they're all the same. There's still dukkha. Okay? Uh, second and third question from the same person. Uh, sorry. Uh, just as one, one subtle difference is this. Any of the area, Sotapanna or anyone, any of them, the moment they enter that stream, it means there is an understanding of mind's nature. The level of acceptance 
acceptance and contentment will be more, for sure. Because they understand how the mind works, they understand that things come and go, there's a much greater acceptance of transient nature of life. Because of that understanding, because that craving is lowered, because of that, even the sotapanna's sense of dukkha is still much less than the conventional individual. Okay? Yeah. Two questions from this person. Question one. Is Chaitana related to Sankara independent origination? Yes. Chaitana will be... A, related is a good word, but the idea of Chaitana is actually Sankara also. And Chaitana volition is Sankara. Construction. Volition. That's why Shankara has also been translated as volitional formation. Yes, thank you. Uh, second question is, consciousness arises due to meeting of sense faculties with objects. How does it differ from the way it is explained as supported by intention, planning and underlying tendencies, thereby being established? Huh? I think uh, the, the, she wants to know the difference between consciousness that arises from contact with uh, senses uh, uh, uh. and how does it differ um, and consciousness uh, supported by the, the what you have explained intention, planning, underlying tendencies. Okay. You know, if you look at your own mind, I like, I like to explain in the context of um, experiential, from the experiential perspective. Meaning, I don't, want to, I don't want to explain with words and all because words may not make any impact. Instead, I would like to invite you to just look at your own mind Look at your own mind and you, you see for yourself, right? Your experience of the world sits on six sense bases. There is one way of talking about consciousness. Six sense bases. What you see, what you hear, smell, taste, touch, experience, think about. There is no world beyond that in terms of your experience of the world. In that sense, sixth sense basis is consciousness. Because consciousness really is experience of the world. So there's one way of saying it. Another way of looking at it is the motivations that you have, the engaging that you have, engaging, planning, your... your habits and all, all those things come into play for you, eh? come into play in a very intermingled way with regards to your sixth sense basis, isn't it? You see, you see something you like, you will plan to get it, you will plan to react, you have a plan to react to it. So that is also your conscious experience. Are they different? 
only in terms of how you categorize them. You can, you can pile it down to the bare minimum and say six cents basis. But if you add on, add on to this six cents basis and you start to describe, you elaborate on this six cents basis, then you will come into the, what was discussed earlier. For the regular person, the two things make no difference. They are intermingled, happening all the time. Even where you sit, where you, where you sit there at home, you also have thinking, reflecting, remembering, experiencing, and so on and so forth. And this sits on top of what you heard, what you remembered. So the year, the year registered, the mind registered, the mind remembered, the mind talked about it. It's all like that, ma. But where is it different? It's for the Arahan. For the really top-notch Arya practitioner. That's when they can see the difference. The more there is no minimal... As, I'll, I'll put it this way. As your craving reduces, the more you become aware of contact. So your experience of the world sits on six sense basis without running away. That mindfulness makes it possible for you to become aware when you register something, but you don't act. And you are able, your mindfulness ensure that you keep your reaction wholesome or minimal, not and let be, minimal. So when you get to a point where you can, your mindfulness is very sharp and your practice of the, of the Eightfold Path is immaculate, then, then you don't have this planning, intending, and you are working towards reducing and eventually letting go of all the underlying habits. Only at that level, then we talk about six sense basis without the add-on. But for the rest of us, it's always adding on. Okay? Thank you. Uh, we have uh, at least four more questions. Okay. Uh, Sylvia, can you explain underlying tendencies by giving examples? Thank you. Really? <laughs> examples. Okay, uh, okay. When you watch a movie, right? When we all watch a movie, and assuming that, okay, let's just say a class of five or ten people watching a movie. Okay, forget about movie, real life example. Let's say you witness an accident. You witness an accident. And this ten people witnessing the accident, would you say that their reaction is going to be identical? There will be those who jump to action, go and help victim. There will be those who sit down there, take picture, post on Facebook later. There will be those who call police because they're too scared to get involved, but they, can't, they don't mind doing be helpful, call police. There will be the ones who will just take down 4D numbers so they can go and buy tonight and make a profit. Agree? Why, why all these different reactions? Underlying tendencies. 
in any situation, you, you, if you find that you have a compulsion to act in a certain way, that compulsion is actually your underlying tendencies. That compulsion to act. So if you have a, uh, a lustful, greedy, um, sense, pleasure, gratification person, then your compulsion is comfort, your own comfort. And, and you will make sure that you eat, the food that you eat must be to your satisfaction and, and you have, uh, you're very particular about the ambience and, 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 and so on and so forth, I don't know. So, so a greedy nature, a greedy compulsion will mean um, probably heavy emphasis on uh, finer things of life, uh, creature comfort, that kind of thing. And of course, it could mean a lot more. Okay? Angry compulsion, angry underlying tendencies will be someone who is constantly critical. So even amongst your friends, you find that there are people who is always criticizing and always commenting on something negative. That's an angry underlying tendency. Um, and, but it's of course not so simple. We can be very complex creatures and we can have competing, competing tendencies. Deeply compassionate on the one hand, easily ruffled on the other, possible. Very giving on the one hand, extremely territorial on the other, possible. So all these are competing tendencies because, because we have lived so many lives. We have gathered, we are like, uh, I don't know, we are, we are like vacuum cleaner. Before a vacuum cleaner was invented, we were kind of sucking up all kinds of funny things and, and then it becomes part of your habits, your compulsion. See it as craving. When the, compulsion, when the compulsion arises, there is a craving energy there. Just observe it as craving. If you cannot explain how this come about, it, it's probably from a different time. So it's like babies, you see little ones, right? They all have their own little character. Oh, they have little habits. There's a lot of compulsion going on, driven from when? From a different time, possibly. Okay, yeah. I think this is an add-on question uh, by someone else. Um, does it mean that sensation plays a part in the underlying tendencies? I guess? No, no. Uh, well, yes and no, but it's, it's not that. Your, your tendencies are there. It will surface when the conditions are right. Uh, and when the conditions are not there, they may, may or may not come up. Sensation in what sense? Sanya? Feelings, I think. Feelings. Didn't say. Um, in fact, her question, not very... Um, it's, it's not necessarily. It's a bit confusing. Her yeah. question is, one point is said that the sensation is come to play. Is this correct answer? Sensation come to play? Yeah. I don't understand. Question a bit confusing. That's why okay. I rephrased her question, whether the sensations experienced... Uh, comes to play as part of the tendencies? I can't answer what I don't understand. Okay, thank you, Sir Sylvia. 
Another question. Often, despite the intellectual knowledge, unwholesome thoughts may still arise. What will help minimize these thoughts? Yes, I know what you are saying. Um, there is a reason why the Buddha, assuming that you are a serious practitioner, you really want to be a good person, right? And for that, I will say that uh, look at some of the mental states that the Buddha highlighted as part of cultivation. Faith, Sadda, Sila is the part that we want to do good, avoid evil and purify mind, right? But the third one and the fourth one, the last two, very significant. One is Chaga, generosity. And the last one is wisdom, Panya. Okay? Let me explain how these three help. If faith comes strong for you, if by instinct, you think of the Buddha and the joy arises. You think of the Dhamma and you have gratitude flooding through your pores. You think of the Sangha and you shed tears because, my gosh, there are beings prepared to set aside their own creature comfort, take on the training and really try and see the Dhamma. You have this kind, if, if your faith is very strong, it actually helps to act as a check on your unwholesomeness. Because every time you see unwholesomeness arising, you may say to yourself, Buddha can take it, I can. The, the monks all can practice so well, I also must try. I only have to do a little bit relative to what they have to do. I can do it. So this, your faith, the strength of your faith actually helps you to look beyond yourself. The strength of your faith, right? Because instead of, if, if let's say you get upset, your words will be, why is he like that? Why is he doing this to me? No, 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 no. You will nag in that way because it's all about you. But if your faith is strong, straight away you will say, Buddha had his experience. Buddha could do this, this, this. I am his student. I cannot be such a shame to him, right? I will try. So, strangely enough, your faith, Buddha Dhamma Sangha, right? As you constantly reflect on what these qualities are, they allow you an avenue to focus your unwholesome mental energy and convert it into wholesomeness. So, that's one. That's how faith works. It's not, it, faith is not, you sit there and go, Buddha, please help, please, please help, please save me. Say, it is not that. It is really reflecting on his qualities, his strength, his struggle with gratitude. And you say, you cannot be so no standard and be a source of shame to him. Cannot, must do better. And so you, and, and so you train. Chaga, if you train yourself with generosity, chaga, your mind is, you, you keep telling yourself, this is not about you. Because chaga really is setting aside your own desire, your preferences, your, your entitlement. Put it aside for another. 
the idea here is for another. When that is the case, then when you have this anger coming up, you will say, anger is my anger. This is an anger that's coming up. So I have to try and see things from his perspective. I try and understand things from his angle. I, I just let this go. Don't hold on to this anger. Forgive. Respect. Embrace. You, you allow wholesome mental energy to take the place of the unwholesome men energy, which is all about you. Any unwholesome mental energy means there is a fixation about me, I. Okay? And wisdom, really, wisdom, knowledge is not wisdom. Knowledge is material use that, that you have and that you are familiar with, but if you do not apply in such a way as to harmonize the mind and resolve attention, that is not knowledge. I mean, that, that is not wisdom. That is just information that you keep. It's as good as carrying an iPad with information that you Wikipedia them out. out. It's no big deal. When knowledge translates into a choice, a behavioral choice, that is when knowledge becomes wisdom. A wise behavioral choice, a choice. What is wisdom? It really means the information that you have, you use to tame all the negativities emitting from here, increase the level of wholesomeness around you, find this win-win situation for people, resolve any conflict without, resolve the conflict without aggravating it. This is when there is wisdom. Wisdom really is ensuring an outcome that is good for me and good for you. If your outcome ends up with good for me, don't care about you, well, maybe you're very intelligent, but there is no wisdom there. Okay? Thank you, Cecilia. Um, this person has two questions. Thank you for the Dharma talk. Uh, first question, volition formation is the second link of the 12 dependent origination. Avidya or ignorance is the first link. Yes. Very often, one does not know what one is ignorant about. Under this context, how is one going to put a stop on the volition action and leave an imprint on the consciousness? Ignorant of the Four Noble Truths. Ignorant really is that part of us that has a fixation with pleasures, with sukha. In every one of us, we don't even realise that our mind leans towards pleasure. And even when we do realise, we think it's okay. When you think it's okay, that's ignorant. Okay? There's nothing mystical about ignorance. When your mind say, it's okay what? I'm practising the Dhamma so that I'm a happier person. Okay? You're right. But happier means what? Is happier the result of, of reduced in craving 
or happier because you went to try and shape everything around you to your satisfaction. If it is the latter, that is not the ma. It must be the former, which is really learning how to increase the level of contentment, accepting the nature of life as is, not constantly chasing and wanting. When, that, when it happens in that way, you're on track. When it is all about still shaping and making things happen in a certain way, that is still off track. So with regards to this question, on ignorant, I know he's, he, I think his point is, Chaitanya Sankara is number two, but you have number one, which is ignorant. And I'm saying, actually, if you start to train yourself in understanding accepting until it becomes second nature for you that chasing for sukha, trying to push away dukkha, that in itself is craving. That is dukkha. When the mind can understand and recognize that, when the mind can accept things and let things be, that part, it seeps into your underlying tendency Ah, then your underlying tendency will just stop this chetanan, this problem with creating and pushing and having uh, things working out for you in a, in a particular way. You will change that habit. Your habit is now accepting contentment, letting be. When that is your habit, you are fine. That is when your dukkha, cessation of dukkha starts to, you start to experience that for yourself. Thank you, Cecilia. How could one know that one has entered the stream? Is it through some sort of vision during meditation? I think this is a talk for another day. <laughs> Actually, I think there are very good speakers online that, uh, that have spoken about this. Maybe we can include it as part of the link later on when we upload this thing properly. Yeah. Okay, last question. Um, if one tries to practice the Dhamma or do the sharing of Dhamma, but someone is intent to stop, I uh, think stop it um, from happening, will it be karma for that someone who does so? Uh, it really depends. If, if, yeah, whether or not it is true Dhamma. In fact, uh, we also would end up with creating, generating problem for our mind if, if we are not sharing his words, but for whatever reasons, either for benefits, through ignorance, through wrong understanding, we corrupt the Buddha's teaching that would also create its own uh, demeritorious points. So I, I can't answer this question literally. I mean, sorry, categor categorically. It really depends on the context and the condition. Yeah. Thank you, Sister Sylvia, for a lovely Dharma session. I know many of you had seen this slide before. 
And I will continue to share this as a reminder to everyone at the end of a talk to remember the Dhamma, remember his gift with gratitude. So I'll read this again to remind everyone how blessed we are in this life. If you had experienced joy listening to the Dhamma, do consider honouring our teacher by putting into practice his first teaching to the lay community. Bichaga, donate, help, give support of time and energy to a worthy charity or spiritual organisation of your choice at your convenience and be joyous when you're giving. We must never take for granted the blessings that we have enjoyed in this life. As our forerunners had done it right by us, we must continue the good work for those who come after. May the Dhamma last long. May we continue to, support, to enjoy supportive conditions for learning and practice. And may we never deviate from the true teaching as long as life lasts. This last sentence is very important because we will die. We will move on in this life. And then it will be the conditions that we encounter in future lives that will take us back to the Dhamma. So do make this aspiration as sincerely, as strongly as you can so that with Chaitana, you ingrain it into your mind that you will always come back to the Dhamma. Okay? Thank you. Before we end, let us share merits with all the sentient beings. Etta vata shamehi sampadang punya sampadang sabbe deva numodantu sabbasampati siddhya etta vata shamehi Sampadang punya sampadang Sabbe buta anumodantu Sabbe sampati sidiya Itta vata cha anghehi Sampadang punya sampadang Sabbe satta anumodantu Sabbe sampati sidiya let us share our uh, merits with our departed relatives and friends. Idamenyatinam hotu sukita hontunyatayo. Idamenyatinam hotu sukita hontunyatayo. Idamenyatinam hotu sukita hontunyatayo.
let us pay our respects to the Triple Gem. Arahan Sama Sambuddho Bhagawa Buddhang Bhagawantang Avivadeni Swakato Bhagawata Dhammo Dhammang Namasami Supatipano Bhagavato Savakasango Sangang Namami Sadu, sadu, sadu